The Verso Podcast, the home of radical thinking. Tokens are sort of more and less than money. Transcending the limits of mortality. They're sort of a regulatory sleight of hand. Or transforming what it means to be human. Something that's kind of money-ish, but not quite money. Or inventing new modes of changing our biological systems, our, our, our cognitive systems, so on and so forth. They sort of allow the platform to act as a bank without actually having a financial license. So it's kind of like, I can't believe it's not banking. Hello and welcome to the show. This is the Verso podcast. My name is Eleanor Penny. When cryptocurrency crashed into the mainstream, Silicon Valley angel investors and celebrities and techno-anarchists alike were proclaiming the end of money as we know it. The end of centralized, state-backed currency, the unleashing of investment, the end of petty bureaucracies and regulations by which bigwigs and pencil pushers rule over the lives of the common man. But as Bitcoin bubbles burst, digital tokens are devalued, and a huge cryptocurrency marketplace known as FTX was revealed to be a giant scam, many people are taking another look at the rise of digital currency and what that might mean. So, how are the promises and pitfalls of digital currency reshaping the economy? What can it tell us about how money works and how value is produced? And what ideologies are driving the crypto investors of Silicon Valley, of Wall Street and beyond? On this week's episode, I sat down with Edward Ongueso Jr. and Rachel O'Dwyer to talk about board apes, art markets, Ponzi schemes and butter tokens. Rachel O'Dwyer is a lecturer in digital cultures in the National College of Art and Design, Dublin. She's a co-editor at Neural Magazine and her work has also featured in publications including the London Review of Books, The Convergence and the MIT Press. Her book, Tokens, The Future of Money in the Age of the Platform, was published in October by Verso Books. Edward Ongueso Jr. is a Brooklyn-based writer who focuses on technology, finance, and labor. He's the finance editor at Logic Magazine, and his writing has appeared widely in outlets such as The Nation, Vice, Muckrack, Wired, and Dissent Magazine. He co-hosts the podcast, This Machine Kills, on the political economy of technology. We talked about cryptocurrency cultures and the history of tokens from the Paleolithic past to techno-futures straight out of science fiction. Rachel, Edward, thank you so much for joining us. It's such a pleasure to talk to you both. Thanks a million. Thanks for having us. So Rachel, I'd love to start off with you. So your book is called Tokens and I'm wondering, okay, how should we understand the difference between tokens as like a specific means of exchange and moving resources around and sort of money as we might more generally understand it? I guess the way I understand it is that tokens are sort of more and and less than money. So the classic definition of money tends to be something that's uh, a means of exchange, a unit of account and a store of value and something that you can pay your taxes with. But uh, tokens kind of do more and less than that. So, so they're less than that because tokens usually come with additional strings attached. So 
additional strings about like who can spend it, for example, what they can be spent on, where and when. So a classic example of that would be something like a, a beer token in a student union bar, you know, that doesn't have an alcohol license, for example, or uh, a food stamp. But I think increasingly those strings are being hard coded or programmed into tokens. And partly this is because tokens are, are riding the rails of digital networks and are being issued by companies that have a legacy, not in money, but often in things like information or communication technologies. So tokens are, you know, I think they're, they're kind of less than money in that way. But in other ways, they're also then, I think, kind of a, because they're less than money, they're, they're sort of a regulatory sleight of hand for the platform. So as something that's kind of money-ish, but not quite money, they sort of allow the platform to act as a bank or as a payments processor and issue money without actually having a financial license. So it's kind of like, I can't believe it's not banking. So I guess an example of that would be um, something like Amazon owns the game streaming platform Twitch TV, for example. And um, alongside subscriptions, streamers can get paid in what are called bits, which are, they're a kind of token that like viewers or fans can use to reward streamers for content that they like. And bits are purchased with real money and they're given or cheered, I guess, in the vernacular of the platform to streamers. And then they can be cashed out by the streamer and turned into real money. But Amazon take a 30% cut before that happens. Um, but Amazon are really quick to state that, you know, even though bits are bought with real money and they're turned into real money by streamers, you know, and used to buy goods and services and pay your rent, that they're not actually money or payment. And that means that Amazon can act as an employer without any of the duties that role would normally require. But it also means that they can act as like a payments processor in a bank without the necessary financial obligations of that particular title. And I think even going a step further than that, Amazon also pays its mechanical Turk workers in Amazon gift balances outside the United States and more recently outside India. So, um, yeah, I'm just kind of wondering for those who might not be aware, what's a mechanical Turk worker? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Sorry. So Mechanical Turk is Amazon's sort of crowdsourcing platform where workers can be paid kind of piecemeal wages for performing small micro tasks for companies or for other users. And it's often, I suppose, involved in kind of outsourcing work by companies or, you know, even by individuals, often from what we might call the global north, I guess, to the global south. Workers can sign up for kind of menial tasks and then be paid for doing them. But in order to sort of be remunerated for that outside the US, as I said, the only way to be paid for doing that is through an Amazon gift balance that's actually tied to your physical identity. So there's a name for that particular kind of token. Historically, it was called Scrip. So where workers were paid in a special token that was issued by an employer and it could only be redeemed in the company store. So it's kind of an extra degree of exploitation there, it kind of keeps the flow of wages in a closed loop. So yeah, I guess that's, for me, tokens sort of have these strings attached. They're kind of less than money. But sometimes that deniability, that plausible de deniability can benefit workers as well. Like, for example, the sex industry, it can be quite difficult to be paid. A lot of payments processors tend to be quite adverse to actually dealing with uh, sex work because of kind of historical issues with chargebacks, with people being like, oh, I don't know how that 
you know, how Pornhub got on my <laughs> uh, credit card <laughs> statement, you know. So for things like workers on Chatterbait, for example, tokens can also kind of have, have a benefit in that sense and that they sort of, they allow for these sort of gray areas for payment. And I don't know, for me, tokens are more than money in other ways because because they're not money. They also have this weird kind of parasocial element, like users often prefer to pay people in tokens as well. I was kind of obsessed with, I don't know if you guys came across, you know, the whole pinky doll NPC streamer stuff. Yeah. On, yeah? Okay. I'm not going to do, I'm not going to do an impression and torment the listeners, but like <laughs> the ice cream so good bit is going around my head as we speak. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I, I guess I was, I, I was writing about the sort of tokens in Twitch, which was quite similar, you know, obviously, you know, for people maybe who aren't familiar with Pinky Doll, you know, she's been gifted virtual gifts of ice creams or things to repeat verbatim phrases like she was a non-playable computer character. And I think because those gifts are not just money, there's a kind of parasocial, to use kind of an academic term, element to that, where the person giving her the gift of an ice cream or a nice cowboy hat feel they feel more connected or bonded maybe to the streamer than they would if if it was just a cold hard transaction you know and on twitch there's streamers there's virtual streamers for example like project melody or code miko where paying tokens or paying bits can actually adjust their physical appearance like change their breast size change their but, you know, make make alterations to their physical appearance. So I guess there's maybe also an element of control there. When you were working on this idea of tokens being more or less than money, you, you know, you talk at length in the book about, you know, the ways in which platforms and various orgs might be able to mediate this. You know, did you have a theory going in or sense of the degree to which platforms maybe understood tokens and anticipated the way that they would want to integrate tokens or integrate money or, you know, does it seem like this is just something platforms kind of had to deal with after the fact uh, as tokens, as certain types of tokens began to proliferate more either because of developments in, you know, financial technology or developments in, you know, crypto or... Yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like I got really interested in tokens um, when I came across um, airtime credit, I guess, about... 12 years ago, where in Kenya, I suppose users were starting to use uh, phone credit, basically as kind of a de facto payments. So kind of in the absence of kind of an easy way of, of, of sending small amounts of money to one another, they started using... Um, the M-Pesa system. Yeah, exactly. But this was kind of actually before M-Pesa. So actually even before M-Pesa was rolled out, it was like phone companies are sort of looking at this weird practice where they were saying, okay, so people are buying uh, top-up codes, but instead of actually using them to top the, their phones, they're texting them to other people. And then they figured out, actually, this is this is sort of a remittance. So it's kind of a an informal thing. And maybe some of these practices actually develop quite informally, and then the platform is sort of chasing after them. I think one of the interesting things as well is that actually a lot of the innovation in this space seems to have it seems to kind of emerge or, or come from the South rather than, you know, it's, 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 it's emerging kind of in the global South rather than kind of in, in the West. 
So let's roll back a little bit and talk about the kind of the emergence of the token as this sort of digital phenomenon. I mean, we think about tokens or sometimes we think about the token economy as this like digital native phenomenon. Uh, As you talk about, Rachel, there's tokens going back, you know, millennia, not just decades. But when it comes to what we now think of as like Bitcoin, Dogecoin, NFTs, that whole umbrella of online existence has its roots in some kind of interesting kind of ideological experiments as well in the sort of the the 80s through the 90s especially um and i was wondering if you could talk to us a bit about that yeah you know i think you know some of the earliest ones right are the you know the cyberpunk anarchist uh you know lists that are interested in trying to figure out okay and part of this longer tradition right of libertarians and right-wing anarchists uh, trying to figure out how can we kind of break away, create some sort of zones of exception, undermine government control or centralized control over things. And that maybe one of the things we can do is create some, you know, some value, some way to transfer values, a medium of exchange that is not, you know, singularly owned by states and governments, right? And 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 connected out of, you know, a long-standing project, I think, also by capitalists, by you know, by, by groups of reactionaries who like saw an opportunity coming out of the 1970s, either, you know, with the victory of the of the neoliberal, uh, ascension of neoliberal policy to be like, okay, well, we can, you know, kind of maybe put in place permanent shifts that undermine the state's ability to come in, intervene, organize, you know, we can veto social policy, but, or not that the cyberpunks are thinking in these sort of grandiose terms, but it feels like a germ of this sort of idea, right? I think that, you know, Rachel, one of the things that also interested me, I think, when you kind of dig out this history is like how, you know, relatively early on, you kind of, I think a lot of times when uh, the libertarians and some of the descendants of the cyberpunks talk about social institutions, they frame them, they reframe them in terms of computation, right? And they think like, oh, well, you know, socializing with people is just like when you do this on a computer that on, on a computer and instead you know for example in that early that opening chapter where you kind of talk about you know what contracts are and what, why tokens might use them you know what value is and why tokens might be able to represent a way of transferring that and the ways in which that connects to the you know actual forms of money actual forms of transfer that it's not so much like this is just uh in in real life version of a digital thing but that the tokens, as we're seeing now, have evolved or transformed or seem to have shifted in a different way uh, that's, that might have diverged or, or might have returned back to earlier trades. And I was curious, like, if you, you know, you know with, your, with your research also on, like, this earlier period in the, eight, in the 80s and 90s, you know, how much of it do you get a sense of it as being, a, you know, a project where people really are trying to, like, return and look towards some, like, more essential form of money of exchange and how much of it is like a very explicit uh political project where they're trying to realize some sort of development to prevent maybe uh encroachment of government power or how much those two commingled also yeah and i'd actually love to kind of 
dig into that a little bit more with with yourself, Ed, because there's so many contradictions that in those sort of projects you were outlining there that all kind of glom together to create this incipient force that brings Bitcoin, etc., into existence. You've got the kind of uh, crusty cypherpunk anarchists and uh, the sort of more uh, libertarian frontierist kind of thinking. This is the kind of the wild west, and I am you know, driving my digital donkey down to the gold mine to exchange my gold for some beans, etc. kind of thinking. So where does the sort of, so what's the theory of what money does in uh, swirling around in these circles? I'm really uh, curious as to uh, how they conceive of the link between money and a system of dominance that they're trying to get away from. You know, I think, I think that there are a few threads here, right? Or it feels like, you know, from what I've seen, I think a lot of how, you know, stepping back even a little bit further, right? In Silicon Valley, there are a lot of really interesting threads of thought uh, that weave into it, right? You have some interesting esoteric and occultist figures who are interested in, you know, transcending the limits of mortality or transforming what it means to be human or inventing new modes of sociality or changing our biological systems, our, our, our cognitive systems, so on and so forth. You have people who are interested in just making a lot of money and getting filthy rich. You have people who are interested in creating all sorts of societies, and some of them are ones where they're interested in alternative modernity that's reactionary and without a lot of the recent victories, the very you know, small stretches we've made towards you know um, some form of you know, or some rhetorical ideal of um, egalitarianism right and you have others who are more so interested in just like fighting against very specific institutions and they want technologies that are free of the influence of the state or they want markets that are free of the influence of state and so on and so forth and you know looking at tokens my sense of it also is that you kind of have with these theories of money of some you know you have a large cadre of people who are who really do believe that you know the government's role in backing the currency has you know contributed to in one way or another a sort of political economic system that infringes upon individual liberties that indulges in certain sorts of excesses that has certain types of outcomes that are abhorrent abhorrent as policy outcomes, and also as ways to you know, organize the society, right? That if, you know, in one way or another, there wasn't this sort of monopoly on, on and, and this ease with you know, which currency and money could be manipulated, budgets would be much more constrained, um, the, the cultures would you know, look very differently, we'd be much more rugged individuals, we, might, we, we would embrace more of these libertarian and individualistic ideas and reject collectivist programs, so on and so forth. And, and, you know, also there are others who maybe, you know, look at tokens and, and, and see that there are platforms you can create with them. There are tools you can create with them that allow for um, the, maybe the democratization of finance, right? As one example, it's like the Robin Hood example, right? This idea that the main problem is that it's is not so much that the market leads to poor distribution of resources, but that there aren't enough people in the market and there are not enough people who have access and that if you can 
you know, offer them access to these platforms, then they can, you know, elbow out, they can fight for it, they can duke for it, and they'll earn it. They'll earn wealth, they'll earn security, they'll earn comfort, they'll earn that sort of, you know, rugged individual pioneering spirit, they might make a business, so on and so forth. And then there are others who maybe realize that there's an opportunity here, you know, and I think some of the main examples would be like some of the advocates of like, combining some of the more esoteric parts of Web3, of the metaverse, of crypto into alternate forms of governance who see an opportunity to create a new sort of polity um, and think that, you know, maybe funding certain projects, supporting certain projects, you know, might be able to get us there, right? And, and may or may not be concerned with the ideas, theories at work here, right? I wanted to ask you a question, I guess, and it's something I'm trying to figure out. And I was really interested because um, I came across a couple of pieces that you'd written recently about things like long termism that sort of bring some of these ideas together. Because I was trying to figure out, like, you get, you mentioned a lot of different uh, philosophies there that sort of go into the ideologies of Silicon Valley and Bitcoin. So, you know, I'm trying to figure out, like, how, for example, do ideas like freezing your head and hoarding money maybe go together? Or these ideas of like life extension, maybe, or, or Mars colonization. I was talking a little bit about it with um, a friend of mine, uh, Finn Brunton, who actually he wrote a book called Digital Cash. Um, and I was saying, you know, on the one hand, we sort of have this idea of like kind of there's like a sort of a live forever maybe idea there, you know, or like to transcend, as you say, like uh, the world is a shithole, you're going to leave it behind and kind of move to Mars. And then maybe at another level, though, what we're seeing today is a is the kind of YOLO model, you know, that you only live once, like, and the world is a shithole and it's the Hunger Games and we're all trying to like fight it out for a spot in the lifeboats. Uh, I'm not sure how, how those two ideas kind of sit together it's like maybe it's that if you're rich enough then you can let go and transcend and move to mars and if you're kind of a pleb you have to um i don't know kind of yolo and, and fight it out um i i have i haven't a theory for this i just uh, it's it's something i'm trying to trying to figure out i guess yeah no i think that's i think that's a really good question because um i think a lot of these tendencies feel contradictory because they go in different ways with like what kind of political project they land on, right? If you're someone who just wants to decentralize political power to the level of the community, but want to allow corporations to reign free, you know, the world you want might look different in principle from someone who just thinks that, you know, we just need to loosen the reins a little bit on these corporations, which might look more different than like a world where you think we should build Ubermensch and artificial intelligences and colonize the stars, right? Yeah, yeah. But I do think that kind of something that ties them all together is a feeling like, you know, because I think that these are all fundamentally kind of either conservative. yeah. Or, or there's no belief, I guess, in any kind of incremental political process yeah. there, maybe. Yeah. But sorry, I'm cutting across you. What, no, do, no, what no. do you think? <laughs> I think that's key, right? There's, the incrementalism, you know, is, is, is not going to help us here that instead we need a, a radical break. Yeah. 
And maybe you justify that break by saying, you know, like the future vision we want is so important that if we don't do it, it's it's fundamentally immoral. And that's kind of the long termist argument that like if you don't try to construct a future where 10 to the 43rd trillion humans are able to live in a computer the size of Jupiter, then you're acting immorally because you're allocating resources towards things that would that would not increase the amount of you know goodness in the world in the far-flung future. And alternatively, if you're someone who's interested in creating society where in the long term you and your people like you are free of the limits that might currently exist, whether it's in politics or social life or, or, or in economics, then you know you might say the radical break is necessary because if people figure out what you're doing, then they might, you know, uh, feel one way or another about it and try to stop it. Yeah, I think what ties them together on the front end is like this yearning for sort of alternative modernity where it feels like anything is possible. And then on the back end, a rationalization that like, if we don't achieve this alternate destination, um, we'll never be able to have order or stability or peace or freedom, human freedom and basic liberties. Mm. There's this weird contradiction sometimes, or at least what feels to me like a contradiction cropping up in how the kind of radical potential of uh, tokens and the token economy is talked about. Because there is a lot of talk about like human potentiality and human optimization and uh, liberation for the human species, depending on which way you cut it ideologically. But at the same time, there's a lot of suspicion about the kind of involving people at any stage <laughs> yeah. in the process yeah. um it's like how do we have governments without governments and how do we have democracy without a demos yeah so uh, rachel i was wondering if you could tell us a bit about you know how the sort of smart contracts have been used to sort of design people out of public life in that way yeah i i think that's a really strong through line within the you know history of Obviously, Bitcoin, you know, but also the cypherpunk and the extropian list is this idea of a sort of a politics without people. So, you know, get rid of the people and sort of replace them with the right protocol almost. I was really interested in sort of seeing like what what exactly does government look like or what 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 does governance or what does politics look like to the cypherpunks? Even just like going through, I sort of spent a bit of this one uh, summer, like looking through the the mailing list to see what what are they actually saying to each other about governance. Like, what, what do they think it looks like? And they say things like, "Oh, it's so dull, it's stupid, it's bureaucracy is sluggish," you know. And it made me think of like, um, you know, J.K. Gibson Graham's Capitalist Iceberg. You know, it's this idea that there's a little bit of something above the water and then there's all this other stuff going on underneath. And it's kind of like the cypherpunks looked at government and they sort of thought all of government was the tiny bit that you could see <laughs> above the water. And they're just completely, they're kind of completely ignoring all the human labor, all the bureaucracy that actually goes into making things work. And I think Vitalik Buterin has it has a quote where he says a corporation is nothing more than people and contracts all the way down. And then he says, you know, however, here is a very interesting question arises. Do we really need the people? And I think 
you know, that's one quotation, like there's so many that say exactly the same thing. So this very similar vision for government. You know, it's politics without the people. It's trust in the code. It's taking, you know, replacing voting with decision markets, you know, the money votes, that's democracy. What I found, though, interesting was that, you know, even as they're kind of they had this sort of put down that they used on each other when they started arguing. So they'd go, cypherpunk's the right code, you know, if anybody started kind of wrangling or arguing about politics on the group. But they were always arguing and fighting. So there <laughs> actually was quite a lot of politics going on, you know, even though they kind of wanted to sort of pretend that that it wasn't. And and you get the same thing, I think, in Ethereum, you know, that there's sort of a, a vision, I suppose, of of some kind of perfect, um, you know, mess-free politics, which, which is human off the loop. And yet, you know, we always need humans in the loop. So tell us more about Ethereum. And what is this phrase that keeps knocking around, trust in the code? Like, what are people pointing at? Well, I guess um, Ethereum, obviously, you know, when Bitcoin emerged in 2008, the idea was that you were creating a monetary system that was trustless. So the idea is that you, you know, no longer needed to trust in a third party such as the state or, you know, a central bank. You could just trust in the code. And if you trusted in the code, then, you know, everything was okay. But um, Bitcoin, I suppose, was was kind of very limited in terms of its like scripting capacity. So it was just a system kind of for moving money from place to place. Ethereum then sort of took this idea of trustless kind of transactions and sort of built what's called like a Turing complete system on top of that. So built the the possibility for producing all kinds of different sorts of smart contracts. So not just sort of and sends money to Bob, but other kinds of uh, more complicated contracts or arrangements that could be built out on top of that. I guess what was interesting was shortly after Ethereum launched in 2016, there was a sort of a white hat attack on the Ethereum network where a hacker, um, I'm going to, I'm going to completely not be able to remember the technical details of this. <laughs> so it was called a recursive calling vulnerability. And actually something similar happened like this in real life in Ireland very, very recently. So basically the recursive calling vulnerability was where it's kind of like if you go to an ATM and you take out 20 euro, but your bank uh, doesn't realize that you've taken out 20 euro and you go back and you take it out again and your account doesn't update and you go back and you take it out again. Uh, the funny thing is that actually did happen in Ireland about a month ago. <laughs> I do. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you saw that in the news, but um, um, Bank of Ireland had an issue with their ATMs where people were just withdrawing free money for, for a day. So everyone was very happy. But um, <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, so something similar happened anyway with the Ethereum network and a, a white hat attacker basically withdrew a whole bunch of money and said, well, you know, the code says I can. So, you know, see us, suckers. And um, yeah, it was kind of interesting. You know, it really, it seemed like it was deliberately being framed as kind of a teachable moment because they couldn't kind of make off with the money for 28 days because of the way the code was structured. So everyone had a chance to kind of convene and basically decide if they believed in trust in the code or not. And in the end, they didn't. They they kind of reforked the code and, and took the money back. So I guess when it came down to it, 
you know, humans, humans went out. So when we start thinking about how smart contracts and the sort of various conditions that they can impose on, you know, mm. otherwise supposedly uh, free and utopian transactions between peers, et cetera, et cetera, what should we be looking at when it comes to the social relations that those kinds of smart contracts can imply? Um, yeah. There's a lot of talk about, you know, how people who have kind of gotten around various forms of token economies mm. and various forms of sort of value imposing token economies when you were dealing with like chits or coins yes. or slips of paper and whatnot yeah when there's smart contracts involved all that gets a little bit more tricky yeah I'm, I'm obsessed with in Ireland there was a kind of a food stamp called the butter voucher in the 1980s and 1990s when there was like a kind of massive recession and they entitle people to like a pound of butter, I think, in the shop. But the minute you say butter voucher to anybody over a certain age in Ireland, they're like immediately start telling you everything that they could buy with butter vouchers. And they're kind of colloquially called backy vouchers because cigarettes was like a huge thing. You could buy 10 cigarettes with butter vouchers. So everyone kind of turned a blind eye to the terms and conditions. And I guess, you know, the issue now is with things like WorldCoin, obviously, you know, Sam Altman's um, new um, money system that's kind of folding together identity and money is that we're seeing those kinds of terms and conditions that you used to be able to, as you were saying, Eleanor, get around being sort of folded into the money at issuance. Yeah, I don't know, maybe you guys have other examples of that you want to talk about or bring up. Um, I know there's there's some really worrying ones in like the States, for example, I think SNAP benefits, for example, the food stamps, you can't buy ready cooked meals even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, yeah, that's a, that's a longstanding thing that they've done here. You know, I was, um, I actually was kind of struck by something that you were talking about because, I, um, you know, I was thinking a bit about your chapter where you kind of dived into art on the blockchain, right? And the attempts and the theories of governance that spawned out of this, as well as like the realizations about like what the art market actually is or what the internet actually is. And, you know, to catch up listeners, you know, part of it that I'm interested in centers on this DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization. Yeah. And, and, the, and you know, basically alternative governance structures, right, to try to figure out, to, to try to make decisions using people who are either token holders or members of the community and stakeholders of the community, right, and looking at how their attempts to transform these art markets at first seemed, I mean, and are, you know, silly in that, like, they're offering, you know, this, you know, an artwork or an art piece that, it's not particularly, you know, the adding it to the blockchain doesn't really do much of anything, but contributed to this larger transformation, this dematerialization you talked about of, 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 of art through these NFTs, these non-fungible tokens um, that kind of distilled the core essence of art markets and shined a little light into what some of the ambitions or trends at work here in this in this token economy and specifically in in platforms or organizing structures that are interested in using tokens might be um and so i don't know like do you do you feel that 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 instance of 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 how it entered art markets 
um, you know, in some instances, they burned out very quickly offering, you know, shoddy art or attempting to build out social capital but failing, uh, trying to like recreate or disrupt exact existing networks and consolidating capital behind it. Do you, do you feel like that's a sort of model that will apply generally wherever uh, things are, you know, put on to blockchain or that this is more so a specific instance that happened in the art world? Because I'm curious, you know, like we were talking about food stamps and social benefits and provisions, yeah. like what what they might look like in the immediacy in pilot programs where you're trying to figure out one way or another to put things on the blockchain. Mm. I guess, I mean, some of the programmable tokens that that aren't, you know, they're not blockchain specific at all. I mean, some of the things I'd be more concerned about would be in the uh, what's called the CBDC sort of yeah. area, you know, central bank digital currencies, which are, you know, the state's response to um, platforms, I guess, rolling out their own digital tokens. So, you know, in, 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 in Europe, for example, in the UK, obviously in China as well, China's, you know, already has a, has a, a pilot up and running. Um, that they're they're experimenting with uh, kind of proposals for these um, digital currencies that are programmed at issuance. So uh, yeah, some of those they're not really blockchain based. I guess I don't know. I mean the the for me the art stuff is kind of really an interesting one to look at because I think art sometimes it's treated as this sort of very exceptional economy, but I don't really think that's the case. I mean, mm. I think, or the reason that 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 maybe um, finance is drawn to tokens is that they they do two things well, and they're they're two contradictory things. So on the one hand, you know, they allow uh, very physical, illiquid things to onboard the market, so things that are really lumpy um, and are hard to break into pieces. Um, and that could be like you know a thousand of the Mona Lisa, or it could be like. Um, you know, the, the sort of visions of the like perfect sharing economy, it could be like a little bit of your house. I know um, Glenn Vale and I can't remember who's the guy, Eric Posner um, in Radical Markets. They sort of imagine that kind of economy as well. That book, I think, was published about five years ago. And they sort of imagine this sort of socialist future that's realized by like the perfect exercise the most, you know, the f most freest exercise of markets is going to kind of be the, the most, you know, the most socially beneficial because everyone is going to kind of vote for this sort of use of everything all the time. Um, so, you know, and and I think that is sort of the, the vision, whether that's the reality that you see with tokens. So I remember being at a fintech conference where somebody said, um, oh, we're going to be able to trade equity and anything for anything else. And I think that's that's kind of, the vision in kind of tokenizing physical things. So they allow physical illiquid things to come into the market, but then they also allow things that are really intangible or immaterial also to be, be traded. So that can be, you know, intangible digital works of art, things like hype, um, uh, pithy little tweets, you know. Um, and I guess it's art is, you know, it's just a good example of that because it does both. And as has been the case for a long time with artworks, tokens and system of systems of rights are often more significant than the work in question or the scarcity of that. Um, so I um, I was telling Eleanor actually just before we came on the call, I guess my my first jobs out of college because I, I studied fine art were like working as a tour guide and things like that. 
And um, I uh, I worked as like a invigilator in the Museum of Modern Art in Ireland. And um, somebody stole a cigarette from a ready-made exhibition in the Museum of Modern Art one summer. Um, so it's just like a regular marble red like that you could buy in any old shop. Um, but it caused this just massive, massive kind of issue you know the 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 like the whole show was cordoned off like the invigilator nearly lost his job because I guess you know the whole work kind of relies on so much in terms of like institutional consensus contracts all of these things that 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 you know just going out and buying another marble I think would would have completely sort of broken the contract or, or broken broken that sort of consensus. I'm, I'm really curious going to you Ed about, I guess, to what extent does this sort of phenomenon that for, for many reasons, some of which are very well motivated, gets packaged as a sort of technological revolution. Uh, to what extent is this a sort of extension of something that we're kind of more prosaically seeing um, and for in many other sectors of the economy and have been seeing for many decades, which is just financialization, more and more of life becoming commodified and also then an object of sort of financial speculation. I was sort of, you know, reading through a lot of your work and thinking like, is this Beanie Babies? Like, it feels like Beanie Babies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I was thinking about the chapter in the book that kind of, you know, uses the, you know, the Wall Street crisis to talk about how this gave, I, I think, helped serve as another window into the kind of rampant financialization that has been longstanding and going on by people like Robin Hood that are really interested in in, in this, uh, one, in pushing the rhetoric of democratizing finance, but two, then, you know, like operating in ways usually by, you know, con constructing these like really complicated and untransparent uh, instruments to uh, ensure that more and more things can be financialized or traded more frequently and speculated on in shorter and shorter frequencies, right? I think... You know, when you're talking about this drive to commodify and quantify everything, right? You know, there that makes me think of two of my, you know, sort of bugbears. One is, you know, there's been a drive over the past few years, um, kind of led by the Nature Conservancy, which ironically enough is run by uh, Henry Paulson, who was the Treasury Secretary on the eve of the financial crisis. <laughs> <laughs> but they have been pushing this thing called, you know, nature as an asset. Right, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And, and this idea that, you know, climate change is obviously this huge risk. And we don't want the environment to be destroyed. But that the reason why the environment isn't being properly valued is because it's not being properly valued. And, you know, uh, what if we you know, could, you know, figure out tools, trades, markets that would properly value it. And I think similarly about how this sort of infrastructure has also been built out by, you know, Wall Street. Like it, the largest financial institutions we have, you know, are also some of the largest traders of various physical commodities and energy. And it's no coincidence that, you know, like they are also some of the institutions that push pretty heavily towards creating platforms where, you know, more of the market and more of the consumer can get involved in the sort of speculation that they've already been saturating other markets with. And and so I think that reading through this and also thinking about, you know, the work, I, I do feel like, you know, it's hard, right? Like, I I think calling these things a bubble or calling them beanies is is helpful to think about 
the asset logic that's at play here, this desire to turn everything into something that can be quantified and traded and speculated on, but also because, because the bubbles haven't quite entirely popped or, you know, and, and sometimes that's because of how much money is involved. Sometimes that's because of fraud. Sometimes that's because of other forces keeping it buoyant, or sometimes it's because other small deflations have happened. You know, it's hard to also say exactly like how, in what ways it isn't like the beanies. If, uh, you know, like crypto recently, you know, crypto has had, you know, God knows how many crashes and, you know, to, to the extent that, Supporters and boosters will insist that, you know, this is because it's a boom-bust cycle. It's being slowly integrated further and further into the society. And so these boom-busts say less about speculation and overvaluation than in consumer confidence and institutional confidence that is fleeting and momentary because of scandals and crises and so on and so forth. Yeah, so um, Ed, tell us a bit more about those connections between uh, the kind of mechanisms slash social forces maybe that have allowed things like crypto to really blow up in recent years and other kind of bubbles that we've seen. I'm thinking particularly of, of, of maybe 2008. Yeah, you know, my, you know, in a lot of my work, I think I've tried to talk about how in general in our society there is kind of, a, you know, there has been since the 2008 crisis a wide degree of immiseration that in the immediate sense resulted in, in springing up of a lot of waves of companies, platforms that were interested in figuring out how to take people's assets and their time and their labor and renting it in more and more esoteric and, ex and interesting ways uh, to others, right? Uh, we see the gig economy platforms take off here, kind of unlocking this idea that not only can people be involved in really interesting schemes to work uh, for one another, offer things to one another, but that it could be subsidized for a short amount of time. You bring on more people and you, you'll get them in, you ingratiated in this logic and you kind of spread it to more and more and more assets and more and more facets of life. Really anything that you can think of hopefully can be turned into some sort of uh, on-demand uh, just you know, just in time delivered, good service, commodity, so on and so forth. I think that also seeing at the same time the various experiments and attempts to try to figure out, okay, well, you know, people are also interested in making money or people are interested in gambling or people are interested in collecting or people are interested in this or that thing, which, you know, as 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 Rachel's documented, you know, we can construct platforms around, or that these platforms have been places where people are coming to, and so maybe we can figure out a way to provide a medium or some layer in which they can move things around, right? And so I think over time I've been kind of oscillating between crypto tokens, but also uh, platforms that kind of assume anything that's on them is an asset and can be traded because they're both kind of operating off or exploiting, right, the precarity that is endemic in society, as well as the massive yawning loopholes that have allowed these firms to speculate in their own markets with each other when trading more and more esoteric debts and assets that are unconnected to reality, right? Trading futures on debts for rents, for sewage systems, um, you know, Bodes well. For, yeah, right. You know, um, and then having that logic trickle down and transmogrify more and more things that me and you might be 
doing with one another as opposed to just like large shadow financial institutions doing to one another. And that this has created really fertile ground for a lot of the experiments that have been going on with all sorts of people, well-meaning and not, right? Because there are people in this period who, you know, as much as I am not a particular (laughs) fan of crypto, over the years I have, and I know you have as well, Rachel, talked to people who are actually interested in figuring out like, okay, there's some sort of failure shortfall and maybe that's the market or maybe that's the government. Is there a way that we can collectively solve it? And sometimes they're interested in collectively solving it through these tools because they're interested in, you know, these outcomes that we talked about that come from ideological right-wing projects. And sometimes they're interested in it solely from a solutionist mindset, right? Yeah, I I feel like I actually came to a lot of that work through a kind of an activist mindset of being, yeah, being quite excited at the idea that you could redesign money and then actually became a little bit disillusioned, maybe because it seemed like, yeah, maybe that there was a sense that by re, by designing the right token, you could redesign society, I guess. I'm simplifying, obviously. I mean, no, like I think about, I think like the blockchain socialist is an example of someone who like is not, you know, a right wing yeah. individual, you know, and who thinks about how could we use crypto to solve like a real yeah. problem, which is that the left political programs and institutions would get swept away and might not be durable, right? Yes. And so, like, you know, those could be examples of people who are thinking through it. Right. I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Circles UBI in Berlin, which is, I, I was about to say it's kind of founded by Sarah Friend. I'm not sure if it is, or it's just that Sarah Friend is sort of, you know, somebody who, who I know who's been heavily involved in it, so I'm kind of name-checking her. But, um that was a very kind of very considered project in terms of how they were using the technology. So it wasn't like just like put a blockchain on it, you know, they were very much like sort of thinking about how can we actually foster trust within a particular community and then maybe it'll have a blockchain in there if that's if that's appropriate, but maybe it won't be. Do you still feel the disillusionment you kind of talked about a little bit in in, in that celestial cyber dimension chapter where uh or no or oh. that the, they responded to where they said that maybe all network technology is oh Ru- yeah so yeah so i'm also i so that actually i was thinking i mentioned sarah friend there who's also she's an artist and a developer and she's done this work with uh circles ubi and then that interview was with another artist ruth catlow who's done really, really interesting work with artists and creative practitioners working with the blockchain. And I've spoken to her on numerous occasions, I guess, over the last sort of seven years about art and blockchain. And that was sort of the last conversation we had was kind of back in January, where, yeah, she, I was sort of saying to her, oh God, I don't, you know, I I want to say something positive about this and yet I don't really know what to say and she said yeah she kind of said well all network technology is problematic and you know so is blockchain but I don't think you know she didn't want to cede the space just yet and I guess I guess I you know I would I'd broadly agree with that you know. So um, how are corporations taking up the innovations that are made in uh, token economy spaces in sort of Bitcoin, for instance, spaces uh, and integrating it into their business models, their surveillance models. What does that look like? I mean, I think it's a it's a kind of a 
an interesting question, right? Because possibly there there's this argument, I guess, that comes from Mariano Mazzucato, you know, that state invasions are captured by the corporation, you know, so the entrepreneurial state. So it says, you know, the state is sort of taking the risk in terms of, of developing innovations. And then, as you say, those innovations are sort of co-opted by private corporations who don't have to take any of those risks. And as you say, the, the kind of corporation is sort of riding the rails of the publicly mandated system. I don't know if that's always the case with the token economy, though. So I think sometimes, actually, you also see kind of private innovation being also being co-opted by the state. Or maybe private innovation isn't isn't exactly the right word. Maybe it's more grassroots innovation being co-opted by the state as well. So where informal token economies sort of build up from the ground up and and then are sort of are sort of co-opted. So yeah, if Mazzucato is I guess making the this sort of argument that this that kind of state innovation is captured by corporations, somebody like the economist Hyman Minsky argues that private innovations in monetary economies are actually eventually always absorbed into public money. And I think you could potentially make some of those arguments if you think about, for example, the number of pilot schemes for central bank digital currencies at the moment that are rolling out innovations that were potentially privately innovated or developed in some ways through things like crypto. So, Ed, what is the theory of sort of how the state gets involved here or maybe doesn't get involved? Because in some strains of these thought, it seems like there's some sort of teleological orientation towards the, the state withering away, either being that being the sort of communist, anarchist, liberatory state withering away, or the kind of more sort of right-wing libertarian night watchman state. What's going on with the I with the idea that um Bitcoin or the token economy can sort of uproot governance as we know it from a state perspective? Well I think, you know, here I think that, you know, in some instances, right, there, there are cadres and groups and schools of thought that are really believe that, you know, the, the focus is going to be the state and that it's the state that makes or breaks the ability to enjoy certain property rights that are linked to the ability to enjoy certain types of autonomy. But then there are also other schools that are having other debates where the state factors into it but they're also trying to ask other questions, whether that be in an imaginary scenario where they get rid of the state or in another scenario where they're not really concerned with the state, but with like individual to individual interactions mm-hmm. or one where they are imagining the state in a different form, uh, maybe withered away in, in the progression towards communism, maybe more remodeled in the form that's amenable to corporations another absolute structures, or maybe some some sort of hybrid in the middle, right? And so I think that, you know, I think a lot of the prominent thinkers and talkers today kind of fall out of lines in intellectual histories where the market needs to be liberated, the market needs to be expanded, the market needs to be intensified, and that the state puts unnecessary blinders on this tool of innovation and development. Mm. I'd like to go back actually a little bit to 
when we were talking about the role of art or the role of tokens in uh, the contemporary art market because it's this really fascinating case where there's this really sort of transparent interaction between the, the physical thing and its transformation into value this kind of abstract concept right and uh, I'm wondering Rachel what kind of insights did you get through researching this book about how value is created how value operates in the economy more more generally that we can maybe start applying to not just tokens but plain old money I mean yeah god I think it's it's a value is is it's a really kind of tricky or amorphous concept so it's very hard to pin down I guess you know what interested me was that in in a lot of ways I think maybe I said this earlier, but that, you know, the art art kind of value maybe wasn't wasn't some kind of singular market, but it was sort of a, the market perfected in some ways. I mean, I guess you've different kinds, you know, of 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 value at play. Right. So some things are things are valuable. Let's see if I can remember if things might be valuable. Like we have obviously the idea that things are are some people believe that certain goods are intrinsically valuable. So um, we sort of touched on that with Bitcoin, you know, the kind of Bitcoin maximalists and, and metalists and, you know, a particular kind of faction of of kind of money theorists sort of believe that that money, you know, is valuable because of uh, certain goods are intrinsically valuable. So like gold, for example, is an, is an intrinsically valuable good. Like there's something about this that makes it intrinsically valuable. I don't don't personally believe that anything is intrinsically valuable, but that's, you know, one sort of theory of value, I suppose, is, is kind of a, an intrinsic theory of value. You know, then we have the kind of use theory of value. So things are valuable because they're useful. I suppose there's the one that I find really fascinating is the kind of the idea that things are valuable specifically because they are expensive. So it's called it like a Veblen good after the economist. So things like Birkin bags, for example, or Chanel 2.5 bags. I'm trying to think of things other than bags, I guess. Telfar bags. Let's stay with bags. (laughs) (laughs) What else? I guess, yeah, like um, very expensive works of art as well. Obviously, you know, that certain goods are often, they're they're valuable because they're so expensive. You know, fashion, because of the hype or the buzz that circulates around them. You know, another theory of value then is, is, scarcity you know things are valuable because they're scarce or because there's not a lot of them uh what i find really interesting maybe is that i feel like we're seeing maybe a, a shift away from a sort of a theory or a model of, of value or maybe even a model of sort of like property rights in which scarcity plays a big role you know if you think of property as being a bundle of rights like use the right to profit or abuse and then um the sort of right to like i guess um exclude others. I feel like sort of the, the, the right space around things like actually excluding others or kind of producing scarcity around a good are becoming way less significant. And what is maybe more significant then is this sort of informational value or the hype or the prestige or the bragging rights that are circulating around the good. And obviously, maybe that was always the case with particular kind of prestige goods like artworks or like game tokens or things like that. But I think Actually, you know, increasingly we're seeing that with other sorts of goods as well, maybe. And I think you get that shift very much, you know, with 
sort of the rise of the share economy, that sort of shift away from, I suppose, an economy that's based entirely on kind of excluding access and one that's based on more of the sort of, maybe even kind of what Ed was, was, was alluding to earlier, these sorts of economies that are based on some kind of monetization of, or very granular, I suppose, financialization of, of, of sort of use. I don't know if I'm explaining that very well. No, absolutely. I think maybe I could be called a cynic. Actually, I could definitely be called a cynic when it comes to this stuff. But there seems to be often a, a link um, when we think about how how value capital V is made, aka how kind of stuff matter interactions gain a sort of a, a market value that can be bought and sold. There's often a link between technology and particularly in Silicon Valley and its innovations and just a more ordinary sense of enclosure, <laughs> sort of market capture. Ed, I'd love for you to kind of weigh in on this, the link between Silicon Valley innovation and enclosure of otherwise public or ordinary goods. Yeah, you know, I think Silicon Valley's core operating principle spin out of the political economy of how they get financed, uh, who uses their products, what relationships do they need to maintain? And, you know, these fall on a few core pillars, right? They fall on the venture capital model, the need essentially to raise large sums of money from other people by promising them excessive returns. And they fall from their relationship to the military industrial complex and to other businesses who are interested in offering products to other businesses and, and, and the ways in which these businesses compete with each other when they're doing their businesses facing each other and consumers, whether that's mergers or acquisitions or com or competition or lack of competition. Um, and also by this kind of desire to, or you know, this ethos that in informs it, I feel, where a lot of the solutions that are offered are through mechanisms that are either centered around apps or centered around some sort of platform where the solution is kind of funneling and burrowing into an ecosystem that's being mediated by the corporation or by algorithms, so on and so forth, but kind of cleaved away from the DMOS or from the public sphere, from the political system in of itself. So I think all these converge, this drive for private financing, this, this influence and shape on design from military, industrial, and from business to business, um, and this... Uh, this creation of ecosystems which remove people from the political systems and the social systems when solving political and social problems that manifest as consumption habits or behaviors means that a lot of things get solved privately and get solved in ways that are viewed as in competition with public offerings, right? If we are thinking about how to make transit better, and we're in Silicon Valley and we're looking at other cities, necessarily because of the financing model, because of the influence of design, and because of the way that apps and our ecosystem are constructed, we're going to create a solution that competes with public goods and services and ideally pushes them out to privatize terrain that they operated on. Or we can figure out some arrangement where we're operating in that area with them in some sort of symbiosis, but it's also because we're getting subsidized, 
because we're being prioritized, because maybe we've created a product we're selling to them. Um, and, and, and so I think that, you know, in this sense, right, this drive for these greater returns, this drive for privatizing already public infrastructure so that you can have more autonomy and leverage and also more goods and services to produce and offer, and also these um, these design principles that are, you know, really, uh, you know, coming to them from other businesses, from you know, military research, go a long way in saying, well, you know, we're not really interested in providing things for the public in one way. We're interested in providing them for the public in a certain way, and that certain way is privately on these platforms so that we can redirect the revenues and the profits towards crushing the competition, paying back our investors, growing our product, um, investing and keeping these people on the platform, so on and so forth. And I think that, you know, as long as you have, you know, pretty much reliably, as soon as Silicon Valley starts throwing money at something, that immediately transforms and changes the incentives, right? If Silicon Valley shows interest in a thing, it's usually, it tends to be because, you know, maybe investors, a few investors might be interested in a belief that this product, this good, this service could change the world. But when they say that, they are still first and foremost thinking about it in that lens. It could push out other public competitors, or it could push out the public sector or privatize the public sector. It could push out other competitors, whether they're corporations or other orgs. And it could create a huge future ecosystem of secondary, tertiary goods and services that can be offered to other businesses, other consumers, other startups that would make us all rich, especially if we sit as the mediator within all of these interactions. So Rachel, what has become of a lot of these dreams and investment portfolios of both private and corporate actors who were trying to get in on the gold rush of uh, or have been trying to get in on the gold rush of bitcoin and crypto now we have seen obviously quite a large plummet in the value of certain of these ventures i'm very interested i think in um ideologies i guess around like what 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 sort of drew uh, for want of a better word maybe ordinary people into investing in crypto more recently for a long time, you know, very much of the kind of boomer generation, probably right up to kind of maybe to up to about 2008, I think there was this idea that, you know, if you work hard, that success or stability is maybe in your future. So the old path to the good life was very much kind of a, the rise and grind. I was kind of really obsessed with, you know, those crypto.com ads that came out at the very height of the of the crypto bubble. So fortune favors the brave, you know, where you had LeBron James kind of shelling crypto as this pathway to generational wealth for African Americans who had, you know, who'd struggled to basically to 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 build wealth, and and, and it, it just seemed like I think this, you know, incredibly sort of cruel, for want of a better word, kind of story but it seems as though has has crypto has has some of these kind of ideologies sort of emerged you know from the sort of withdrawal then of of other sort of stable pathways then to any kind of security i guess 
I guess those pathways were never there for a lot of people in the first place. But maybe the withdrawal of them for kind of the bourgeois kind of or the middle classes, I guess, the the withdrawal of that kind of that that good life, that there's this sense that, you know, while Elon Musk maybe believes that the future is going to be better, most people don't. I feel like for me, there there was a you know what what maybe was 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 drawing people into into crypto was that sort of sense of of potentially sort of winning a spot in the lifeboats that there was this sort of desperate desperate bet often for you know for students like even my students kind of talking to me about like turning one month's rent into three for example. Yeah, no, I think that's really real. You know, during the pandemic, especially, you know, with people sitting on so much either more money or less money that's dwindling, you know, there was a massive uptick in gambling and in using a lot of the financial and fintech platforms uh, to try to turn more you know, money into more. And along the way, getting interested in, you know, crypto communities as um, social communities, right? Getting invested in them because of financial advice that they might offer elsewhere. Um, you know, I think that you're exactly right. You know, like the pulling the rug out from other people right. in the financial zone yeah. led them to those. But I think also that like crumbling and failures and other places also led them there too, right? You know, like yeah. atomization and, and loneliness. Um, this, I, I think also the general push in gambling, you know, like I, I think it is underrated how the legalization of sports gambling and the and the appification of it uh, led to you know more and more platforms experimenting with and growing the sort of like background industry of okay, how do we do algorithmic? How do we algorithmic? How do we algorithmically mediate people's gambling such that it resembles? the insights and innovations we've made with physical casinos. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the Robin Hood's, uh, one of Robin Hood's executives got into a lot of trouble because I guess they weren't prepped properly for an interview and, and essentially admitted to that and <laughs> on the Wall Street <laughs> wow. Journal. Oh, it's like, we know? all know it. You're just not supposed to yeah. say it. Come on, you bro. Know? And Wall Street Journal is not exactly, you know, like, you know, they... They're not a Marxist rag, but yeah, it. So it was a bit of a surprise when they fumbled that one and then got nailed for it a bit more. But of course, you know, because I think like in the pandemic, especially, you know, when we talk about gold rushes, we usually just think we usually talk about it in terms of the profit to be made. But there's also like the negotiation of like what is allowed and what's not allowed anymore. Yes, that comes up, and that I think is also such a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Yes, so I, I'm so curious as to what we what we get by calling it a scam. Like, what is that? What's the nature of, of that insight? What are we pointing to? Because there are a lot of mechanisms that seem very, very similar to things that are perfectly legal in other zones yes. of finance. Uh, Ed? You know, I think um, it's hard, right? Because on the one hand, you know, I, I think of it in that there are some... Yeah, there are critics like me who are eager to call some some of these endeavors scams. That also then results in a sort of debate or contestation about when something is a scam or, or not a scam. Is it a scam because people lost money or is it a scam when money's stolen? Is it a scam because it convinced people something that 
probably wasn't feasible is possible? Or is it a scam be only if they know that that's not possible? You know, is it a scam if it suddenly changes direction and becomes something else? Or is it a scam only when, you know, that money is sort of taken, lifted, and, and used to enrich the other person, right? And I think also debates about the scam, because, like, we just talked about a little bit earlier, right? Part of that Wild West metaphor is even more so with this digital frontier, or, you know, some of it is a digital frontier, some of it, it's been here for decades, right? Because of this constant renegotiation of what what is legal and what's not, and because of the billions and billions that are at stake, sometimes things that might sit at the center of it, but be dubious, there's a lot of debate about whether they're called them scams or not. Like, you know, yeah. FTX and Binance. Yes. That's good examples, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, um, there's a academic, um, Lana Swartz, um, who's currently working on a book on scams. And I think, you know, her her reasoning is kind of what, what society kind of, calls, you know, what is and is not a scam versus what is legitimate finance, where that line is drawn or where we as a society draw that line, that tells us a lot about the sort of shape of contemporary capitalism. So something can be, you know, like the kind of FTX, something can be a unique investment opportunity one day and a Ponzi scheme the next. (laughs) It's like, actually, there's a quote I came across years ago and threw into the book from um, a a finance journalist called Matt Levine, and he says the great art project of our age is to entirely collapse the distinctions between fraud and performance arts so that one day mortgage bond traders will be able to say, wait, no, I wasn't lying about bond prices to increase my bonus. I was performing a metafictional narrative about bond price negotiations in order to problematize the underlying foundations of bond trading and late capitalism. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah. You're giving a lot of powerfully bad ideas to both performance (laughs) artists and bond traders. And so uh, to forestall that disaster as much as we possibly can unfortunately that is probably all we have time for but it's been an absolute pleasure and delight talking with you both thank you so much for joining us ed rachel this has been the verso podcast i've been your host eleanor penny thank you so much for listening and join us again next time thanks so much eleanor yeah thank you it was a real pleasure that was our episode. We talked to Rachel O'Dwyer and Edward Ongueso Jr. about tokens, cypherpunks and Beanie Baby style financial panics. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating or a review. It really helps us out. And join us again next week where we'll be talking to Chantelle Lewis and Danny Dorling about inequality, the housing crisis and the British welfare state. You've been listening to the Verso podcast from Verso Books. This episode was hosted by Eleanor Penny and produced by Planet B Productions. For more discussions with radical thinkers, head over to versobooks.com.